0: So if you don't know me, my name is Kendall. I'm a pastoral intern here. And if you were uh, here last time when I preached, I promised you that it'd be the best sermon that you've ever heard me preach. Well, today I want to raise the bar a little bit. I want to say this is the best sermon that you've heard in 2015. (laughs) That is, of course, unless you've taken advantage of the right now media, and then this will be the worst sermon that you've heard in 2015. But either way, we're going to do this. Michael said, We're going to be having a class coming up called I Love the Church, and it's really going to explain who we are. And one of the aspects of who we are is that we are a reformed church. And really, all that means is that we ascribe to a doctrine that is called reformed theology, but it began 498 years ago with a man named Martin Luther. See, Martin Luther was a Bible scholar, a priest, and he looked at the church that he inherited, the church that he was a part of, and he thought, that they had departed from biblical truth. So he penned down 95 different reasons. Uh, Apparently, he didn't have Netflix. (laughs) 95 different reasons that they had departed from the Bible. And he nailed those reasons to the church at Wittenberg. And really, it started a revolution. It started an amazing chain of events that hundreds of churches were planted all throughout Europe. And the face of Christianity has never looked the same ever since this moment. Now... You might be asking yourself, Kendra, why are you telling me about that? That's cool what happened 498 years ago. But the problem that I see within reform circles, the problem that I see with calling ourselves reform, is that a lot of times we treat being reformed as if it's a past event. See, there's two ways that we can look at reformed. We can look at that four hundred and ninety-eight years ago this event happened. And it's done. It, it happened and now it's gone. Or we can look at the fact that our hearts were dead and our hearts were lost and that we needed the gospel to break through. We needed Jesus to come in and reform us into his image. For all of our life, we had been cast in the image of this world, but now we needed a reformation. We needed to be reformed. But yet, even looking back like that, it's still a past event. And whether you ascribe to reformed theology or not, I don't think that that was the purpose of the reformation. You see the motto of the Reformation was not that we are the reformed, that we have arrived. It was reformata semper reformanda. I'm a Latin scholar, so if I mispronounce that, I'll attribute it to my southern accent. (laughs) But what that means is that reformed and always reforming. You see, the reformers understood the most basic tendency the human heart was to be pulled and dragged away from God by everything that is around us. They saw that while the people of God who were coming to church weren't denying Jesus with their lips, but their hearts and their lives functionally, practically, revealed that they were far from God. See, their desires and affections they noticed rarely, if ever, rested completely and ultimately on Christ, but they were always pulled and dragged by all their circumstances, by all the things that are happening in their life, that they were constantly shifting. See, Martin Luther, the very first thing that he said in the Reformation, the very first thesis that he wrote, was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he called for the entire life of the believer to be one of repentance. Usually the first thing that a man says is the most important. I don't know about all of you other men, but I'm pretty simple-minded. I can't stay on track very long and I need to be on my one track. So the first thing that I usually say is typically the most important. And he wanted all of the people who read that document to realize that repentance was to be the entirety, the totality of the life of a Christian. And since repentance is turning back to God, we as the people of God need to be an ever-turning people, a constantly reforming people in everything. And and I want to make clear that this is not a resolution. This is not a New Year's resolution. You see, the mantra of this world is that if we add this one thing to our life, we take this one thing away from our life, then we'll have joy, then we'll have peace, and then we'll have everything that we've ever wanted. But yet, the truth of the gospel is that we have a God-sized hole in the middle of our heart, and then no matter how many resolutions we can make, none of those will fill us if we don't have Jesus as our greatest affection. You see, it's interesting to me that America, we make more New Year's resolutions than any other country on the planet, but yet also, we're the most depressed country in the history of the world, the most heavily medicated country in the history of the world. And we can debate the reasons for that. I'm sure there's thousands. It's a complicated issue. But I really believe that one reason is that we've bought into the lie that we can replace Jesus with things and still get the same joy and satisfaction. See, if I just lose this many pounds or if I start exercising, if you smoke, you might say, oh, if I quit smoking, to save more money, learn something new. If I recycle, give more money away, take vacations, work harder, work less. Get that promotion, get fired. I don't know what your resolutions are. You might hate your job. But, if, but the lie is is if we put anything in the place in the throne room of our heart where Jesus is supposed to reside, then we won't have happiness, we won't have peace, we won't have joy. See, when I make losing weight, it's the one that I struggle with. I sit down for a career. I read. I don't get a lot of exercise. If I make that my end goal for my happiness, then every time I stand on the scales and and they tip just a little bit heavier than I thought they should, I'm devastated. If I make that my happiness, if I make my joy my (laughs) self-identity or the way that I appear, then I'll be destroyed. I am the most clumsy person on earth. I walk into walls that aren't even there. See, when I make my self-image anything other than Jesus Christ, I'm buying into a lie that cannot deliver on its promises. I'm investing in something that will never have a return. And my challenge for us today is that we would make just one last New Year's resolution. We'd make the New Year's resolution that would end all New Year's resolutions. We'd mark it down on our calendars, put it on our refrigerator, write it in our portfolios. Whatever you need to do, repeat it until it's so permanently stamped upon your heart that you can't forget it, that we will not be reformed this year. We will not arrive in 2015, but we can be an ever-reforming, constantly repenting people. You may be asking yourself, Kendall, what does this mean? How can I be constantly reforming? If I spend that much, I'm going to get dizzy and fall over. I know for me, if I turn to God as many times as I sin, I'll be falling over. The answer to that is that you would be diligent, that we would be diligent, we identify the things in our heart that have replaced God, that we pray and pray and pray that God would reveal to us those things, and then we would be diligent and faithful to kill those things, to make war with those things. John Owen was a Puritan that lived after Martin Luther just a little bit, and he was also a reformer. He said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. He didn't say it may be killing you. He said if you're not diligent in killing your sin, it'll be killing you. A guy a little bit later named Richard Baxter said that we need to lay siege to our heart and the sin that resides within it. That's a paraphrase. And today, I want us to know that it is a sin if we have anything in our hearts that demands more love, more affection, more worship, if it clamors for our attentions more than Jesus Christ. So it's our duty now To be praying that God would reveal those things. And as I'm talking, I'm sure, like, things have popped up in my head. Things may be popping up in your head. You may realize that there is something there that has demanded more of my attention. There is something there that I functionally love more than Jesus. I might not say it, but it's there. Write it down. Pray about it. Seek God over it this week. Seek God over it this year. 2015 can be different but it starts with us being a repenting people, us being a constantly turning to God type of people. So whatever's laid claim to your heart, pray about it. Give it to God. I really believe God's got something great for this church. I really believe that God is going to use this church in a mighty way. But I also believe even stronger than that, that God refuses to allow us to stay where we currently at. God's got so much more. God's got so much greater for each and every single one of us than to allow us to stay where we are. He loves us too much, and the way that we move forward is through repentance. Turn with me, after that very long introduction, to Jeremiah 17, 5 through 8. We're going to hang out there for just a little bit and see see what we can hear. Thus says the Lord. Anytime you see that, it's kind of a big deal. It's from the mouth of God. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. For he is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Now before we can look at these two types of plants, see there's two types of plants here, there's two types of climate, there's a compare and contrast here. Before we can look at that, I think we need to look at the setting that Jeremiah gave this passage. You see, the people of Judah right now are living on borrowed time. They have been rebelling and rebelling against God for years. They've presumed upon God's grace and God's mercy, and now judgment is coming. The backdrop of judgment is this Babylonian empire that is growing in strength. It's becoming a worldwide empire of all the known world at that time for those people, and it's pressing down upon Judah. It's coming, and they know it. God's already promised in previous chapters in Jeremiah that judgment is coming, but yet the most beautiful thing about this passage is in the midst of judgment, God's not finished with his people. God still has joy for his people. God's promising that they can rest and have hope even in the midst of their greatest uncertainties and their greatest trials. Now, <laughs> This is great news. This is amazing news for three reasons. The first... This is not just a command that God gave to Judah. It's not just a command that lives in the Old Testament. I know we live in the New Testament and praise God, but this is something that applies to all of us. This is something that each of us can hear, and that's good news. The second reason is because 2015 is just going to be like 2014 if we don't trust in God. You see, the lie is every single year we get told that this year's going to be better. Last year was horrible, this year is going to be better. But all of us in 2014 and 2013 and 2012 experienced pain, disappointment, and disasters. Some of us much worse than others. Some of us went through things that were almost unbearable. Some of us got by relatively easy, but none of us failed to get hit. We all got hit. And I don't want to be overly pessimistic, but the promise of 2015 is not necessarily the greatest year you've ever lived. It's that pain is coming, but you can have joy. You can have hope. That is the hope that this passage gives us, that you can have peace and rest in the midst of uncertainties. The last thing I think is beautiful is that God compares two types of plants in both of these examples. And what God's been teaching me is that both of these examples are children of God. Now, see, it's easy. And the first time I read it, it was easy for me to jump to the fact that, oh, yeah, 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 the guy who lives out in the desert, that's clearly not a Christian I need to move on to the blessed guy. But yet, God gave this message to his chosen people. God gave this message so that they could believe and rest in the right things instead of the wrong things. God gave this message so that they could have hope in the dark circumstances that they were getting ready to face. God gave this so that they would repent. See, God doesn't use a plant that's going to die in the desert. He doesn't say, if you believe in me, you can be a tree that rests by the water, and if you don't believe in me then you're dead. He doesn't use a tree. See, if he would have used a tree in both circumstances, the tree inevitably is going to die. What I find fascinating is that that's not the message God wanted to communicate to his people. God used a shrub. Now, if you know anything about a shrub, it's a very persistent plant. It can live on very little water for a very long time. It can stay there for years and years and years through the drought. And I think what is so amazing in that is that God is literally telling his people, yes, you can survive. You can eke out an existence if you don't follow me and trust me, but every single thing around you is going to be absolutely dead and lifeless. And I'm going to allow you to live there so that you can see that no fruit is going to come from the way that you've been living. See, this is not an angry God or wrathful God saying, follow me or I'm going to strike you down. This is a God who's saying, even in the circumstances that you're getting ready to face, even in the trials that you're getting ready to go through, I'm with you. I will be your God if you will rest in me. This is huge. This is a loving father warning his people, telling them that he is their greatest hope. You see, in the saltiest of soil, which most people agree that Jeremiah might have been thinking about the Dead Sea, you know, know, dead, that almost every single thing around this area is absolutely dead except this stubborn little shrub. And it's so stubborn that it even has a mechanism for its own survival. See, while most trees produce fruit, this tree produces these little flaky seeds like a dandelion. So when the wind blows, it casts its seeds out all over in a thousand different directions, hoping, praying that maybe one of them will land in good soil. You see, isn't that kind of the desert, right? Right? You get parched, you haven't had any water, you get disoriented, you've been wandering around for a while, and then off in the distance, you see that beautiful oasis that never comes. And when we notice this, we see that this is the plight of man, but not just all men. This is the plight of men who refuse to rest and trust in God when God has called them, when God has bought them like I said, the hope of the desert, desert shrub is the same hope that we have when we, don't refu- when we refuse not to trust in God. We cast our hopes, we cast our dreams, we cast everything that we have out in a thousand different directions, hoping that one of those will land in the good soil. For years and years, this shrub was thirsting to death, choking to death, still holding on to the vain and glimmering hope that it can have a paradise. And my question For all of us, as we face this new year, as we come out of 2014 and we go into 2015, where have you been planted? Where have your feet resided? Where are your roots digging down deep into? And then a follow-up question is, what greatest hopes have you had that you've cast out, hoping that they would bring you joy and peace? What are the things that you have thrown out there, hoping that they would bring you abundant life, but yet have not delivered on their promises? It may be lust, greed, power, control. There's a million things it could be. John Calvin says that our heart is an idol-making factory, constantly producing and reproducing things for us to throw our affections onto. That's why our heart was created by God, to be something that overflowed with love and affections, but yet in a lost and fallen world, we throw our affections onto everything other than him. It's especially true during this time of the year when we're looking back with discontent. We're looking forward to what God has in store for us. But yet, I'm I'm here to tell you that if your desires and affections are not rooted in Jesus Christ, then you're the shrub. You're still in the lifeless soil. And it doesn't matter how many New Year's resolutions you make, because New Year's resolutions can be good. But if you don't have your faith and hope and trust and rest in Jesus Christ, then you're still in the desert. Now, you may be asking yourself, Kendall, come on, seriously, I'm in New England. It's like zero degrees outside. I'm pretty sure that I'm not in the desert. You're right. You're absolutely right. But the Bible, when it talks about this type of desert, it means something far more perilous than the hot and the heat. See, there's three reasons in the Bible that we can be in a spiritual desert. There's three reasons that we can be far from God. One is unconfessed sin. One is self-reliance and one is God's judgment. But yet all of these reasons are rooted in this idea of misplaced affections. You see that is sin. Sin is having an inordinate or overabundance of joy in something other than God. It's placing your hope and your desires in something other than him. It's taking his good things and twisting them into bad things. Unconfessed sin, what is unconfessed sin? It's it's not confessing to God your sins, right? But What's the reason behind why we hold on to our sins? What's the reason we don't confess them? Is it because we refuse to submit to God out of fear that letting go of that will not be as good as holding on to Him? Psalm 20, or Psalm 32, 3 through 4 says, When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy upon me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. That sounds a lot like a desert, doesn't it? Self-reliance, what is self-reliance? Its when we refuse to let go of the steering wheel, when we say that, God, I can actually take myself to a better place than you can take me if you would just take over the controls. Look at what Jeremiah says earlier in this book when he 's talking to these people who have rebelled against God, who refused to give him control of their life. My people have committed two sins they have forsaken me the spring of living water and they have dug their own cisterns broken cisterns that cannot hold water you see self-reliance is like trying to take a cup without a bottom and holding it up to the faucet and then putting it to your lips and it's still just as empty as it was when you put it there and you are still just as empty as it was when you put it there but the hope is is that one day that water will hold but it can't it wasn't created a cup without a hole is a tube it's not a cup Finally, the Bible says that there's judgment for God's people if we refuse to rest and trust in him. You see, God is gracious. God is infinitely gracious. But how long can we, how long can I presume upon his grace? How long will he bear with us? And we see in this passage that God will punish his people because he loves them enough and cares about them more than allow them to stay in their circumstances. Look at what Amos 8.11 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine upon the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. See, there's a worse type of famine, there's a worse type of drought, there's a worse type of desert than a physical one. Did you know that if you don't rest in Christ, if you don't put your affections upon him, that you can actually stop hearing him? Do you hear God today? When you pray, does it feel like sometimes that you're screaming into a cave and the only sound that you hear coming back is the sound of your voice slapping you back in the face? Trust me, I've been there. I went through seasons where I was so dry and so thirsty that I could, I wondered what was the, what was the problem, but yet here we see it. And if this is you today, if your life feels dry, if you feel thirsty, then the answer is not more resolutions It's not more good things that we've turned into ultimate things. It's taking a plunge and taking a dive into the unending waters of God's grace. There's another type of plant in this verse, and thank God, right? And actually, the focus of this passage is not on the first plant. The focus is on the contrast between these two. You see, the shrub exists in a barren wasteland, but the tree is planted by a garden. I don't know if you guys have ever been to the Middle East, but when I was there and I was flying over Iraq, see, it's really hard to notice anything growing when you're down on the ground, but when I was flying over the country, the Euphrates River was right there, beautifully out of my little window, and about 20 feet from both banks was the most beautiful green trees that I have ever seen, and then stops immediately, and it's nothing but deadness again. The shrub has no water, but yet this tree in this passage has a never-ending supply. The shrub casts its hope out in a thousand different directions, but we see the tree digging deeper, resting, staying exactly where it's at. The shrub's dried up and withered, but yet the tree is green and vibrant and full of life. The shrub's anxiously casting its seeds out all over the place, but yet the tree doesn't have a care in the world. The shrub can't see any of the good things that are coming. But the tree can't stop seeing the good things that are happening. And finally, the most important one for me, as I was preparing for this, is that the shrub doesn't bear fruit. The best that it can muster is a flaky seed that it throws out, hoping that one day it'll land in a great place. It doesn't even see if it happens or not, it just blows it away. But yet, the tree never ceases to bear fruit. And isn't it interesting, if you think about the tree, the tree doesn't benefit from its own fruit. The tree has fruit to benefit others. And I believe today that God has a plan to plant you, to establish you beside the water, a plan to raise you up and produce fruit so that not you, that everyone else around you can benefit while you're drinking deeply from the waters of his grace. Now you ask yourself, how can I possibly plant myself, Kendall? I see that the shrub casts its seeds out. I, I understand that, but a tree has roots, it's deep. I'm pretty sure they didn't have cranes in the Bible. I mean you dig it out and your big root bowl. Okay? I agree. But that's why the Bible's so amazing. That's why God inspired this word. There's two things about this word planted that I want us to notice. To see, the shrub's not planted. Look in the text, it's not planted. It just exists. It's just there. But the tree's planted. And when we think about what does it mean to be planted? Means that there was a planter. See, someone else had to come along and bear the weight of the tree. Someone else had to bear the burden, someone else had to dig down, someone had to plant the seed, someone had to cover it with soil, someone had to choose a great location for it, not just for the tree's health, but for his purposes to bring up fruit. Then when we realize that today we can know that planter. It's not just something that God told to the Israelites in Judah. We can know that planter. Look, look at it. Jesus Christ came and bore our burdens, just like the planter bears the burdens of the tree. Jesus Christ came and covered our sins with his blood, just like the trees covered with the nutrients of the soil. Jesus Christ came and dug down deep and planted the gospel in our hearts with the seed through the power of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus has a never-ending source of grace that he wants to pour out on you and pour out on me and pour out on this church. And isn't it absolutely breathtaking that God puts us in this passage as a healthy tree and the way that he got us there was by coming and dying on his. That's just one part of the word. The word planted also has an idea of being transplanted. I'm not a medical expert, but I'm pretty sure transplanting is when you take something that's dead or something that's alive inside of a dead body and you cut it out Forgive me if I'm being gross. You cut it out and you put it in something else so that it can bring life. And we know in this passage that if you put your faith and trust in anything other than Jesus, if you're resting and getting your satisfaction of anything other than Jesus, it's a one-way ticket to a barren wasteland. But if you're transplanted, it doesn't matter where you are, what sin you've been a part of, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are, that you are not stuck, that you can be cut out, that you can be pulled out, that you can be transplanted by the water you can be replanted. You see, when we choose the location, we always end up in the desert. When I drive, I never end up where I'm supposed to go. But when I give my controls over to Jesus, I end up in the life-giving water, and not just for my sake, but for the sake of everyone around me who will be nourished off of the fruit that God brings into my life. Now, you may be saying, Kendall, that's great, but isn't that fatalism? You told me that God has to do the work, and what am I supposed to do? Am I just, you know, standing here idly by? I have no part in any of this that you've been talking about. Maybe you're not asking that, but I'm going to answer it anyway. No. The Bible tells us there's four things that we can be doing, that we can actively be doing to support the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And it's my hope for us in 2015 that we would get these things, just these four things. So number one, we need to confess our sin. 1 John 1, 8-9 says, If we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, remember earlier I said that a sin is a misplaced affection. Well, the cure to a misplaced affection is a replaced affection. The cure to a bad affection is a greater affection, a positive affection. And what is that? Number two, treasuring and loving his word. Psalm 1, 1 through 3 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. See, David here was chilling out reading Leviticus and singing praise songs. Not just Leviticus, the whole Bible that he had in front of him. Meditating on it day and night. He's like a tree. That man... Is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaves do not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. In all the circumstances that are happening around him, he still prospers. In a similar way, memorizing scripture, I know the older that I get, the harder it is for me to remember things. I forget stuff all the time. But this is so important because in Deuteronomy 32, it says, "'May my teachings drop like rain.'" May my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass. See, rain softens the grass, doesn't it? And if we would know the character of God, if we would know the teachings of God, if we would memorize those things about him, that when the problems come up, we would have an overflowing wealth of information that we can lean back on and say, no, I can trust this God. This God is for me, not against me. And finally... Let us take our misplaced affections and replace them onto Jesus. Redirect our focus onto him. Notice what Jesus promised in John 7, 37. He said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So today, if you're not a Christian, then the promise is there for you that if you would come to Jesus, that you will be satisfied with an overflowing abundance of his grace that all the things that the world has told you to put your focus on, that all the world, all the things that the world has told you to love and put your affections onto have failed you, but Jesus Christ will not fail you. And if that's you today, then surrender control of your life. Give it over to him. There's people who would pray for you. You can pray where you're sitting, but just surrender the reins of your life and give it to him. If you're a Christian and you're hanging out today, and you've been hanging out in the desert for a while, there's two things I want to say to you. Don't be ashamed. We all have things that have popped up in our life that has stolen our affections, has stolen our attentions. Don't be ashamed. But also know that you're not stuck. You have hope that you can be replanted, that you can be placed beside the living waters if you would focus and refocus your life back on Christ. Now I'm really proud of myself for this last image that I'm going to share. My wife is learning about photography, so I'm trying to pretend like I know a little bit about it. But uh, there's this effect in a photo called bokeh. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Have you ever seen a picture where one person is completely and perfectly focus, and everybody else is blurred? Well, the way that that happens, one way that it happens is pretty technical, and I don't really know enough to even talk about it, but... One way that that happens is is that when the lens is opened fully, and all that light can come in, for some reason, it's still a mystery to me, it blurs everybody that's not the point of focus. And then the one who is the point of focus comes beautifully and crystal clear. And as I was thinking about that, I wanted to tell you that if your heart is closed to the gospel today, and you're not letting in the light that James was talking about earlier, that is Jesus then your picture is going to be focused in a lot of different ways. Many of the things that are in the picture of your life will be focused, and they'll be competing for your attention. But yet, if you will open your hearts fully up and let the light of the gospel come in, you'll see that your life reflects only one thing in perfect and beautiful focus, and that's Jesus. And then everything else will become a beautiful and wonderful blur.